It's been a painful week, my friends. A lot of images, a lot of emotions that cause us to pause and perhaps experience a lot of discomfort. I think this, I experienced it most potently through kind of an odd uh, mechanism. And I first heard it before I saw it. If you're not a child of the 70s or early 80s, I apologize. <laughs> Dukes of Hazard, in their older, grown-up form. I heard it first because it was on my television while I was reading something else. And this is them now in a commercial for Auto Trader. <laughs> Some of you might have seen it. And if you notice what they're doing in the General Lee, that's the car, at least in the revamped version, they've taken the odious Confederate flag off the side. But you see what they're doing? They're running from the cops. Been in trouble with the law ever since the day they was born. And I heard this song and then paid attention to it while I was reading about the facts of the last half hour of Freddie Gray's life. Freddie Gray, who was arrested, we were told, for running from the cops, not a crime, carrying a knife. Not a switchblade, not a crime. And it hit me. When some folks run from the cops, it's a marketing strategy and something we can laugh at. When some folks run from the cops, it gets them a ticket to the morgue. This past week has been another uncomfortable reminder, painful reminder for many of us. That although it is not always the case, it is often enough the case that the experiences of white and black Americans, people with light skin, people with darker skin, can sometimes be very, very different and with devastating consequences. What's happening right now in Baltimore, my friends, is part of a vast movement, a movement that didn't start with Freddie Gray in Baltimore and will exist beyond it. And if and how and why we choose to pay attention and sometimes feel uncomfortable, feel as if we're not sure what we're looking at, matters a great deal. If we let our attention lapse individually, communally, we might just be shocked again the next time it happens when the trouble returns to us. That's what today's story with soul in this ongoing series is about. Not the plot of it, but the inner meaning of the story. It's a very simple story from 1958. It's about this fellow, the man who didn't wash his dishes. That's what it's about. He comes home one day. He makes himself a big meal. He lives on his own. And he's sitting there feeling very satisfied. And he just doesn't want to do the dishes that night. And so they... Stack up. And the next night, the same thing happens. Big meal, feeling very satisfied, long day at work. Dishes stack up again and again and again and again and again. 
until he's eating out of vases and soap dishes. And if you can see this picture, he's totally overwhelmed. He has a tear in his eye. Although the story doesn't tell us, I like to imagine, what did he think would happen with all of these passing days? After day four, do you think, okay, yeah, I see the piles coming around, but somehow they'll go away magically. Day 10, day 12, day 13. We're probably looking about a year here, right? And yet nothing changes. Sometimes an awareness opens in our lives that what we're doing just isn't working. Individually and collectively. At moments like this, I like to think of this quote, a treasured one of mine, and I know that many of you are familiar with it as well, from Pima Chodron, the beloved Buddhist nun. This is what she writes. Nothing ever goes away until it has taught us what we need to know. If we run 100 miles an hour to the other end of the continent in order to get away from the obstacle, we find the very same problem waiting for us when we arrive. It just keeps returning with new names, new forms, new manifestations until we learn whatever it has to teach us about where we are separating ourselves from reality, how we are pulling back instead of opening up, closing down instead of allowing ourselves to experience fully whatever we encounter without hesitating or retreating into ourselves. It's true of the man who didn't wash his dishes And this is true for many of us on this morning after this week and paying attention what's been happening in Baltimore and throughout this country. Race and racism and the ongoing legacy of white supremacy in custom and in law is still with us and has many of us feeling overwhelmed. What happened in Baltimore did not happen in isolation. We know this, not if we pay attention. Freddie Gray's death occurred in the context of a city that just in the last three years, or at least between 2011 and 2014, paid out $6 million to people who juries had judged were victims of police brutality. This phrase, rough rides, if you've been paying attention. Now, that may be, we don't know yet, the officers have been charged, but we don't know exactly yet. Justice should prevail, should have its day in court. But rough rides didn't come around with Freddie Gray. In Philadelphia, they called him nickel rides. They've been with us for a long time because that dates all the way back to the time of trolleys and subways when they cost a nickel. And the practice went like this, that if you were picked on or picked out by the cops, they would put you in the back of the paddy wagon without restraints and you would like you were being buffeted around in a subway or trolley, be tossed about. Other people have died from this. This is not new. And yes, I think it's always important to say, I know many, many fine police officers, many decent, fair, open people. And they have an incredibly hard job that I could not imagine. And still, I hope we realize we're getting past the point of just saying, oh, it's a few bad apples. I hope we're getting to the point of recognizing this is a systemic issue with what is going on in police cultures, particularly with poor and people of color in this country. 
But this is bigger than just police, and it's bigger than police brutality. This is also about the places and the place that Freddie Gray lived in, not just died in, and how he died. Here's some things I've learned this week. Some of you know Baltimore well. Some of you know Maryland well. You might know that there's a community within the city limits of Baltimore called Roland Park. One of my best friends in the world went to school in Roland Park. Very, very elite place. If you are born in Roland Park, and this is average, it's not individuals. If you are born in Roland Park, you have an average life expectancy of 84 years. Five years longer than the average American life expectancy. If you are born in the kind of community in Baltimore just a few miles away where Freddie Gray was born, your average life expectancy is 64 years. And you know that's not just about quantity of years. It's about the quality of those years that predicts the quantity of those years. 20 years separated by only a couple miles, having to do with the dumb luck of the draw of who you happen to be born to. Yes, I have respect for individual effort and individual merit, and I like to see people rewarded for their hard work and their diligence. But this is bigger than that. This is about who we are, where we're born, predicting so much of the outcome of our lives separated by just a few miles, meaning 20 extra years on this earth. The odds are stacked for or against us in all kinds of ways and so often breaking down along economic lines or the color of our skin. To only claim what we get in this life is about individual merit or what we deserve or what justly comes to us is after a certain point failing to see the reality of other people's lives. There are 15 neighborhoods in Baltimore, 15 neighborhoods in Baltimore, where the average life expectancy of a person born in those neighborhoods is less than the average life expectancy of someone born in North Korea. Let that sink in. There are eight neighborhoods in Baltimore where the average life expectancy is less than someone born in Syria. We look at those places, and actually it's official governmental policy, to get those people to rise up and rebel against a system that is clearly oppressing them. And I know when I sit with these kind of statistics, and I see what's gone on in Baltimore this week, there's always that thing in the back of my head that I know that is true for me and true for my family and true perhaps for many of your families. My family, my lineage, my ancestors, Eastern European Jews, America has been an absolute success story for. It's not true for all of us. And simply retreating to the fact that, well, it's worked for me and my kind or claiming that America is exceptional or just saying louder, well, we're number one is after a point a refusal to see the reality of people who live and people who die in a place like where Freddie Gray was from. Our current intern, who's becoming our assistant minister, 
here at Wellsprings this summer, Lee, she posted something on Facebook that I think was incredibly perceptive this past week. And I'm going to paraphrase her words because it went on for about a paragraph. She first started by saying and reflecting on Baltimore that she wishes no harm to come to anyone. No harm whatsoever. And still, an awareness rises from within her consciousness. And mine as well, too. Which is that why is it that some acts of violence and resistance are seen as heroism? And some acts of violence are seen as pathology. And only the reflection of what's wrong with other people rather than the systems that they were born into. I will admit, violence scares me. I don't even like, and some of you know this, I don't even like interpersonal conflict. (laughs) Violence scares me. And that's where Pima Chodron's invitation matters the most. Not to close down, not to shut off, not to say those people over there, I'm not going to pay attention to their lives, but to continue to pay attention and to continue. Someone just said this to me the other day. They said that something they saw running on one of the major news networks, and by the way, this wasn't Fox News either, was, you know, there was one really significant night of violence and rioting in the city of Baltimore, but all week long, what it read was riots in Baltimore. We have to question the version of things that are given to us. This is where we can listen to what perhaps the greatest American prophet of healing, reconciliation, and yes, nonviolence, Dr. King said, which is that the riot is the language of the unheard. Doesn't mean we have to be comfortable with it. Doesn't mean we say it's the right way to get change done. It means we have to recognize that we cannot just dismiss it and also at the same time recognize what perhaps we're not told And we have to remember, because it's true, that the vast majority of protesters this week in Baltimore and all throughout this last year and a half of the Black Lives Matter movement have been nonviolent and have been calling us to pay attention. Pay attention to the ways that our dishes are continuing to pile up. Pay attention to the fact that this costs all of us as Americans. It doesn't cost all of us in the same way. Sometimes it costs us our privilege. It costs us our sense that life is fair or makes sense. It costs us our comfort. It costs us our peace of mind. It costs us our well-being. And yes, for some people, it costs them their very lives. But this, racism and the legacy in custom and in law of white supremacy, it costs us all. This terrible challenging moment is also a chance to open. And this is where I want to go back to the book. The dishes just built and built and built and built and built and the man was upset. And then suddenly something happens. It pours. (laughs) It rains. It drenches. And he has the idea I'm going to take everything that is dirty out into the rain and to invite it to get clean. 
This is about paying attention to storms and not turning away from them, but going out into them. Right now, kind of culturally, we're in a place, if we're paying attention, where we might feel like we're eating from the soap dish (laughs) and there's no room. And so what is it that will call us out into the rain and into the storms? Because the storms are calling us, please pay attention. Don't let this storm pass. Pay attention to the lives lost. Pay attention to the lives that are born with 64. Not when I'm 64, I mean a happy Beatles song. No. The end of life for many. Sometimes the awareness comes individually, collectively, that what we're doing isn't working and just creates more fear and more suffering. And maybe if it costs us enough, we will then pay attention and try something new. Borrowing from another tradition that is near and dear to my heart, the recovery tradition, I believe it is well past time for those of us, especially those of us with lighter skin and with white skin, to be sick and tired of being sick and tired of this legacy of racism. It is well past time, especially for those of us with white skin, to take a fearless moral inventory of this country and its history and not turn away any longer. And to particularly pay attention to the fact that in the places like where Freddie Gray lived and died, what is going on there, if it was a human body, we would say that sometimes if we've seen this in people that we love, what it's suffering from is multiple organ failure. Systems of too much violence, Too many illegal guns, too much aggression, too much police brutality, not enough jobs, not enough connection. Honestly, if I had one thing to ask any of you to do here today, it would be this. If you haven't already, please watch The Wire. (laughs) There's a few of you who have. (laughs) It is, for me, the most important social document of our time. It is, as they described themselves in the last season, it is like Dickens, opening the heart while also clarifying the mind about the suffering that is in our midst. It was written by people who knew, who cared about, who wrote about the cops and the criminals, the people in the communities not seen from the outside. People who understand that to live and die in these places should not just be an afterthought. It is also the most important social document and critique about families, about children, about schools, about jobs and lack thereof, about crime, about the fact that finally this is what I hope more than anything else. And I say this as a recovering person, that this war on drugs must absolutely end. It has traumatized, terrorized entire communities making drugs illegal has done nothing certainly hasn't cut down the number of addicts and listen to that word we wonder why there is so much police brutality when we have effectively militarized our own police and that's not what police are there to do I recognize a lot of this sits very heavily on my heart and perhaps on yours. So I want to end with some things today that actually I think are some green shoots in this green season. Some people who might be getting it. And that there may be some opening for some change. Some of you may know the names the Koch brothers. The politicians or the ones who support politicians. I'm not a fan. (laughs) 
And yet something miraculous is happening. The Koch brothers in consultations with another group that I do like a great deal called the Center for American Progress are pouring millions of dollars and resources and sustained attention to the fact that this mass incarceration resulting from the war on drugs is the next iteration of our long standing institutionalization of racism in law and in custom in this country. And they're asking, can we do things differently? They're paying attention to people like Michelle Alexander. Yes, the Koch brothers are paying attention to Michelle Alexander and her teachings about that this is what she calls, rightly so, the new Jim Crow. And the fact that disproportionately those who suffer under this regime of law and punishment are the poor and people of color. Cities like Seattle are also starting to shift away entirely from a punitive approach to those who are addicted, not even putting them into drug court, but offering people who are addicts who are found with drugs or to be high on the person that they're offering them places to live and medical care non-judgmentally. And you know what? I think this is what probably got the Koch brothers interested in it. It's cheaper and it's more effective and it's more humane and it works. We have to re-engage our moral imagination if we're going to face what is here, but it only comes about by paying attention. And it's about more for me and for many of us in the war of drugs. It is part of that fearless moral inventory of paying attention to our past, which increasingly or always is a part of our future and recognizing how by not paying attention to the past, we're actually robbing ourselves and many people of a future. I believe in repairing the damage that has been done over these centuries At one point in my life, I would not have said that I believe in reparations, but I do. I do wholeheartedly. Now, how and what would that look like? I don't know exactly. I do know that I expect absolutely nothing from our Congress to get anything done in that way. (laughs) Nothing at all. But that doesn't mean it can't come from other places, such as this. There can be leadership from other people. The fellow in the middle, the fellow with the great hair, one of the two white people in this picture, is a guy named Harris Rosen. By the way, this is not a white savior story. I want to be clear here. This is just someone with resources who chose to use those resources wisely. Harris Rosen is one of those people from one of those families for whom America has been a total, total success story. He is a multimillionaire with hotels all over Florida, particularly around Orlando. And he, starting to reach toward the end of his life, focused on what many wise people do at the end of their lives, which is focus on their legacy. What were they literally leaving behind? And Harris Rosen decided to pour resources over 20 years and $10 million into a small, struggling, largely poor, largely African-American community called Tangelo Park, Florida. And over 20 years and $10 million, it has made a difference. It has made a big difference. He promised, these are some of the older children of Tangelo Park, he promised that if you go to our schools and you graduate from high school, that used, by the way, to have a 25% graduation rate, now is a 100% graduation rate, I will send you to college. He now invests in early education for all of the children of Tangelo Park. It has reduced crime. It has made the schools much better than they were. It has made a difference. And what it also has done, I think this is so important, and sometimes I hear this, and I know sometimes it comes out of, Just repeating talking points or it comes out of 
hopelessness or despair. Or sometimes it comes out of outright racism, which that it doesn't matter how many resources we can pour into disadvantaged neighborhoods because it's all about their culture. Tangelo Park puts the lie to that. This is a problem not of their culture, but our resources and our moral imagination. And this brings me back, finally, to the book. The big storm comes. All the dishes get clean. New start, right? Maybe. Because I know a lot of people, and I've been one of those people, where like the storm comes around and ah, you get a break for a little while, someone pays off your bills, you get out of trouble, and then you go right back to the same way things were before. But that's not what the man who forgot to wash his dishes did. He took advantage of that moment that helped to liberate him. And then he started washing his dishes every single day. This is what Harris Rosen has done. Every single day, showing up, providing the resources. This is not a white savior story. This is someone with resources choosing out of justice and kindness to share those resources. I don't expect anything like this to come from the Congress. I think it should. (laughs) But what would it be like if a hundred Harris Rosens popped up and said that they were going to adopt a hundred Tangelo Parks? Or those of us who don't have near the money of Harris Rosen, pulled our resources and said, this is where we want to direct them to repair this damage done over centuries of law and custom of treating some of us as less than others. After the rain, after the riot, after the rebellion, whatever you want to call it, there is an opportunity to restore. And yes, to practice that phrase that many of us know and many of us love in a different way. As the beloved teacher Thich Nhat Hanh said, sometimes we just have to wash the dishes to wash the dishes. And that means showing up with a compassionate, clear, aware, and mindful approach to our country, to our history, and to all of our lives so that this doesn't have to keep costing all of us. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of an unfinished life, in unfinished times, in an unfinished country, in an unfinished universe. May we recognize and accept the call of this unfinishedness, that there is still work for us to do, sometimes as a burden, but so much more as a blessing. That we can look with clear eyes and open hearts and willing hands upon who we are and how we arrived here. That we may allow ourselves to commit those hands, those hearts, those voices to the work of, as the ancient Hebrew prophets called it, tukun ha'olam, the healing of this world. May we not give in to despair. May we not give in to fatalism. May we not give in to our fear of all that threatens us, but instead 
turn and turn and turn again to face this reality so that all of our lives take on the form of the beloved and our hands are given to the work of what Dr. King and many others said that we do not know exactly how the moral arc of the universe will bend, but we can help to direct it towards justice and kindness and love. Amen.